The Daily Rios, Episode 394, Dark Days, The Forge, Breakdown. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. This is the second breakdown episode, taking a look, for now, at the lead-up issues to the metal event that kicks off this week. Last episode was a breakdown of the Dark Matter ash can that DC released in April, spotlighting the various new titles and concepts that will spin out of metal. I would recommend listening to that episode or reading the free ash can on DC's website because you'll start to see some of these concepts and characters in these opening act one-shots of The Forge and the casting. And it most likely will help you to make sense of some of the characters and some of the scenes that are playing out. Now, if you didn't listen to last episode, Breakdown is the name I'm giving to an episode where I talk about a comic in the footnotes style, if you know what footnotes is from the old CGS days, which means in-depth detailing of the comic Uh, page by page, of the cast of characters, the dialogue, the actions, asking questions like why are these elements being used, do they have previous connections, and what does it mean for the larger DC universe. This is all filtered, obviously, through my experience with DC Comics, so I'm sure I will miss some things here or there because I'm not exactly caught up, and I'm just as sure that some of the things that I do speculate on may not exactly pan out, but um, it's fun to explore and it's fun to try to make some connections, um, sometimes with evidence, sometimes without. All of this, really, I hope, is just a fun exercise to listen to so that if you maybe aren't familiar with the DC Universe, these episodes will help you. I'm hoping that they can act as an addendum to the books themselves to increase your enjoyment or to get you ready for the main metal event. So today's breakdown episode is on The Forge, and then the next one, The Casting. Uh, Both of these one-shots have been called opening acts. So if metal is the main event, if metal is the big headlining uh, act at a concert, then Forge and the casting are two opening acts, and they are used to get an audience hyped for what they paid to see, for what they came to see. Even TV shows have this concept. Um, If you go to a live audience recording, there are some TV shows that will have comedians or one of the stars will come out and they will talk with the audience to help bring the audience together into the mindset of the show. I remember seeing David Letterman live, and he did it for his talk show in New York. Before recording, he would come out. Actually, I think they did have a comedian or a producer that would come out and lay out some groundwork, and then Letterman would come out before recording, and he would ask the audience questions. And then he would go backstage, the recording would start, he'd come back out, give his monologue, and I guess he already had a sense of what the audience was like in front of him. So, um... I can see that being a valuable tool. So that's how I picture the forge and the casting. It's getting readers ready, getting the audience ready. These are opening acts showcasing just how big 
the metal event will be. I certainly didn't realize it was going to be this big. And these issues reveal just how zany some of these ideas will be. Um, they lay out the groundwork, not only for the metal event, but for the entire DCU by using past events, previous character mythos, and uh, giving them new connections or new ways to look at them, giving them new meanings. So with all that said, let's begin with a breakdown of Dark Days The Forge. So we start with the cover. Dark Days is the title that they are giving these two one-shots. So the main metal event is being branded as Dark Knights, N-I-G-H-T, which is obviously a play on Batman being called the Dark Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. So the opening act, since we're not quite yet at the Dark Knight yet, um, they're being labeled as Dark Days, right? So day leading to night. So that's kind of very obvious. Now the Forge, why did they use the name The Forge? All right, so I looked it up. A forge is used by a smith to heat a piece of metal to a temperature where it becomes easier to shape. Now, boy, does that make sense, right? In that Snyder and James Tinian uh, and company, they are the smiths, and the DCU is the metal. And this issue, uh, which is called the forge, right, like an actual forge, it's bringing the heat, <laughs> if you want to say, so that Snyder and company can reshape what we might think of the DC universe or what Snyder might think of the DC universe. So he's getting it, he's getting the DC universe into a place where he can then shape it for his story. So uh, I love, I love that. I love that sort of meta textual stuff. Now the main cover image is by Jim Lee and Scott Williams, and it's an it's a scene that looks like it's some kind of hellish War of the Worlds nightmare as Batman looks on to a giant statue of himself. The statue looks like he's in some kind of armor. The headgear on the statue feels a bit like something that the character of Owlman would wear. And if you don't know who Owlman is, Owlman is a Batman analog character from the alternate Earth of Earth 3, and particularly... Uh, a group called the Crime Syndicate of America. So Earth-3 is an alternate Earth where characters are twisted, they are evil versions of themselves, um, and that might have something to play out um, in this metal event. Not necessarily Earth-3, but the idea of twisted evil versions of characters. Now there are people, I assume dead bodies, that are tied to the legs of this giant statue, either in punishment or sacrifice, and then surrounding the statue are these bat drones, and they look like giant metal jellyfish, right, just floating around. And in the foreground is Batman, who is obviously our main character, torch in hand, with a backpack slung over his shoulders. He's clearly out of his element in this uh, cover image. Uh, it's like he's in unfamiliar territory, and I have to imagine we're going to learn why. Now, I looked up the forge and saw a link to a poem by Seamus Haney, and it's called The Forge, uh, and it appears in a volume of poetry called Door into the Dark from 1969. Now, is this a coincidence? Uh, maybe. Is Scott Snyder that well-researched? Who knows? But these names feel like they could be inspirations for this issue and for, you know, Dark Days, Dark Nights, uh, Dark Matter, etc. 
And I'm going to read the poem here. So this is, again, this is, this is the poem. Um, All I know is a door into the dark. Outside, old axles and iron hoops rusting. Inside, the hammered anvil's short-pitched ring. The unpredictable fantail of sparks, or hiss when a new shoe toughens in water. The anvil must be somewhere in the center, horned as a unicorn, at one end, and square. Set there immovable, an altar, where he expends himself in shape and music. Sometimes, leather-aproned, hairs in his nose, he leans out on the jam, recalls a clatter of hoofs where traffic is flashing in rows, then grunts and goes in with a slam and flick to beat real iron out to work the bellows. Now, how cool is that poem? Again, I don't think it means anything to the story, but um, right away I get an image of Hephaestus or Vulcan, the Greek god Hephaestus or the Roman god Vulcan, clanging away on his anvil, making weapons for the gods, and um, not to jump ahead, but um, that is going to mean something to the next issue of the casting. And then just some of the imagery, right? Uh, an altar, calling the anvil an altar, where he expends himself in shape and music. I, I, ah, there's just a lot of stuff in that poem that I like. So um, again, I don't think it really means anything, but uh, it was kind of nice to find. Now, there's a variant cover by Andy Kubert of Batman and Aquaman holding a trident on top of a rock with fire all around. That's actually uh, a scene that'll take place within this story. And then, there's, and then there's another variant cover by John Romita Jr. with Batman and Superman flying. And Batman is in this flying harness. And he kind of looks, it looks very much like the harness that Orion wears. Um, I think he's, I think he calls it like the Astro Vest or something like that. So they are flying through the Fortress of Solitude. And this is another scene that will play out within uh, this issue. All right. So now we get into the actual meat of the issue. Let's go through page by page. I'm going to take each sequence um, and, and stay with... Uh, the particular scenes. So for instance, the first two pages are one scene. And uh, so this is page one and two. The narration is by Carter Hall, who is Hawkman. We get a flashback to his Egyptian origins. And on that page, he mentions his princess and his advisor, his princess being Cheera and his advisor being Hathset. So if you know the origin of Hawkman, uh, Carter Hall especially, is that he is the reincarnation of an Egyptian prince, and so is uh, Hawk Woman. She is the reincarnation of an Egyptian princess. I love some of the narration here where he says, this is my final journal, and he writes here, it was a clue to the greatest mystery in the history of mankind, and it was written in metal. So what he's talking about is, as you see here on these pages, they are running out into the desert because they saw something fall from the sky, and it's this massive ship. Now, we as readers know that it's a ship from Thanagar. It's a Thanagarian ship that crash lands to ancient Egypt, and um, we'll see more of this uh, origin story play out. I like that line that I just read. It was a clue to the greatest mystery in the history of mankind, and it was written in metal. That is what I like to call the still point of moving time. I use this in theater a lot. It's basically when 
um, you find that one line in the script that sums up the entirety of a play. Sometimes it sums up a scene or a character. Um, I don't remember where the concept comes from. Uh, I'm trying to rack my brain to remember where I heard it, but it's called The Still Point of Moving Time. Maybe it's from a movie or a novel. And I feel like that line is exactly what metal is about. It was a clue to the greatest mystery in the history of mankind, and it was written in metal. This feels like this is what the event will spin on. It'll just spin on this line. A mystery, metal, etc. Now, these two opening pages, there's a lot to explain, so bear with me. Um, If you need supplemental reading for these two pages, because this is right where my brain went, You need to read JSA issues 20 through 25 from 2001. Now, I don't mean this as homework. I just mean that this is where this stuff is coming from. These issues from the JSA are the buildup and eventual return of Hawkman to the DC Universe at that time. So it's kind of interesting that we're once again trying to deal with the return of Hawkman or looking for Hawkman. So, um... Post-Zero Hour, uh, the Hawkman that we knew was wiped out, of, wiped out of continuity for a while because he was such a mess. And then Jeff Johns and David Goyer found out a way to bring him back. And that, that was the storyline return of Hawkman. So these, two first, these first two pages, we're seeing some of the origin that was brought up in that storyline where, yes, we knew Carter Hall was a reincarnation of Prince Khufu, but there was never this idea of a Thanagarian ship falling to ancient Egypt, and that's what started the whole Hawkman uh, corner of the DC Universe. Um, The original Golden Age origin was just that Carter Hall was an archaeologist and he found out he was reincarnated and that was it. And then in the Silver Age, Hawkman and Hawkgirl were aliens from the planet Thanagar and um, there was a loose connection between the two. And then you got you went through the 80s with the Hawkworld and the 90s with a Hawkworld series and suddenly and Zero Hour and they tried to mesh all these characters together. So this was the way that Jeff Johns and company said, look, we can connect the Golden Age Carter Hall, who is a human, to Thanagar by way of sending a Thanagarian ship to ancient Egypt. And uh, that gives Carter, that gives the start of um, the reincarnation process. And when Carter Hall becomes Hawkman in the Golden Age and he realizes he's reincarnated from this uh, uh, prince, Um, He already has the ideas of Hawkman and Thanagar and and using wings, and and that's why he looks like he could be from Thanagar, but he's not. He's human. So a little bit more about that JSA story. The new origin for Carter Hall that involves this um, Thanagarian ship is told to Jay Garrick in the past by Prince Khufu himself, Prince Khufu Ketar, right? That name sounds familiar. Um, Because uh, through a previous adventure, Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash, winds up in um, ancient Egypt. So he's in ancient Egypt in the Arabian Desert, 3,000 years before any contact between Earth and Thanagar. And uh, here is this Thanagarian ship. And this Thanagarian ship has now given them the discovery of Nth Metal. 
nth being N-T-H, nth metal. Now, I'm pretty sure in Golden Age Hawkman history, that metal was called ninth metal, but then somewhere along the way, it was called nth metal, and I think that number designation will come up uh, with the next issue for the casting. So, uh, to go back to this JSA story, um, Prince Khufu at the time is accompanied by Nabu, who is um, the lord of order that powers Dr. Fate, and also Teth Adam, who eventually becomes Black Adam of the Shazam family. Now, there was a female survivor of that Thanagarian ship who warned everybody about the uh, about someone named Sin, and she told them what Nth Metal was. And in this previous JSA story, the Nth Metal was just this small little rock, uh, the small little, you know, nugget of metal that powered the ship. Um, and with um, the Forge, the entire ship is made up of Nth Metal. Uh, and also the the ship design is basically the same from that JSA story to uh, what you see here in the forge. And um, there's a couple quotes that I want to read from that story, and I'm going to read them throughout this uh, episode. So the first one is, hidden within its composition were the secrets of the gods themselves, the power of flight, and more, much more. And that sounds very much like, you know, what's going on with... Uh, the forge and with metal, that the metal itself has something, has a secret and has power that uh, rages through it. Now, when they got to the actual return of Hawkman's story, there was a prophecy of a battle that would rage across Earth and Thanagar, and not only did they use the nth metal um, to create the power of flight, but they also created something called the Claw of Horus, which was this war gauntlet made out of nth metal. And that's how they eventually uh, defeated this character of Sin, because they used this, uh, you know, this gauntlet. Now, during the story, the origin of this ship is explained to the Hawk Girl at the time, who was named Kendra Saunders. And uh, she's told this story because she is on Thanagar. And they talk about how nth metal is psycho-receptive and how it absorbs and responds to emotional states and that it governs gravity and the other fundamental forces binding the universe, such as electromagnetism, the strong force which binds atoms together, and the weak force which is, res which is responsible for radioactive decay. And all of those inherent qualities um, are going to play out. In this issue, it is also because of those inherent psycho qualities um, that when the ship crash lands in Egypt, the racial memories of Thanagar are implanted into Prince Khufu. So that's why uh, Carter Hall eventually comes up with all this hawk imagery, and that's why it's the same between Earth and Thanagar, as I said before. Not to mention that since Thanagar uh, lost the knowledge of nth metal over the many, many generations. They sent scouts out to learn, uh, you know, to, to find their, their original ships. And one of them was Perrin Katar. And he is Katar Hall's father. And Perrin Katar wound up on Earth and met the Golden Age Carter Hall 
he met the Golden Age Hawkman before he became Hawkman. And that's, again, all these connections, right? Um, you have the Golden Age origin of Hawkman and these writers started to throw a lot of the Thanagar stuff into his origin to make it all make sense. Return of Hawkman also has the son of Hawkman named Hector Hall as Dr. Fate. And at the time, he believed that his wife Lyda was in a coma, um, but it actually turns out to be someone else. And the interesting thing is um, Hector Hall and Lyda Hall had a son named Daniel. And uh, that character would eventually get wrapped up into Neil Gaiman's Sandman and would become the new dream after Morpheus. So there's a, there's this really weird connection because Hector Hall was in the dreaming and he was um, he took on the identity of Sandman, not the Sandman from the Golden Age, but the Sandman created by Jack Kirby that um, dealt with dreams and had this red and yellow costume. Um, eventually, Neil Gaiman brought him into the dreaming and uh, eventually, at the end of the Sandman series, when the first Morpheus was killed, they needed a new dream. And they used Hector Hall and Lyda Hall's son named Daniel, and he became the new dream. So when I say that there are a lot of connections within this story and within the DC universe, yeah, it's very, very true. So I love a lot of the opening dialogue in these first two pages. It's very similar in feel to the Forge poem that I read, um, such as, There is a feeling you get at the beginning of an adventure. You feel it in your veins, the channels. Your heart starts pounding, beating only for discovery. I mean, could there be a better description for what it's like to read the first part of an event that you know is going to be awesome? And all of this, this has only been the first two pages, right? But this is what I meant when Snyder... Um, <clears throat> is is playing around with many, many, many DCU mythologies. You get this real rich uh, um, approach to an, uh, to a story that I, I didn't realize was going to be this big. By the way, these first two pages are also drawn um, by Andy Kubert, and um, his father, Joe Kubert, has uh, a history with Hawkman, especially the Silver Age Hawkman, and, um, and the Golden Age Hawkman, now that I think about it right? I think he drew some Golden Age Hawkman stories. I can't remember. But it's kind of nice to have that little bit of uh, lineage. All right, then we get to pages three through six. This is the second main story going on within this issue with Batman. All of these pages are also by Andy Kubert. There's a research station in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle, and um, it's slowly being destroyed by something in the Earth. It turns out to be a Wayne Enterprises black site. And there's a little bit of narration here where it says, there's something wrong with the Earth's core. There's something in the metal. So right away we're connected to what was going on with Hawkman. Uh, there's a character named Dr. Madison. Batman is in a large bat mecha suit, and he rescues the doctor. Eventually, Aquaman shows up, and he questions Batman, and he says, what are you looking for, Bruce? And uh, Batman says, look, do you really want to know with what I know is locked underneath Atlantis? Which made me think, hmm, do we know what's under Atlantis? Is this something from the Aquaman series, or will this play out in metal? Um, so he doesn't give Aquaman a an answer, but he does say, what are they hiding uh, you know, what about this metal? Um, what what does Batman know? Why does he say the word they? 
and they are being watched by a cloaked ship, a Black Hawk ship, if you know those group of characters, which will they will play out with uh, the next uh, one shot uh, with casting. Um, and there's a character named Lady Blackhawk. I don't know if she's the character that showed up in the new 52 Blackhawk series, but she is reporting back to her home base. And right away, again, we, we get the notion that this is bigger than Batman and that uh, all this stuff will play out uh, soon enough. And then pages seven through nine, this is the third story we follow in this series uh, or in this one shot where Ganfit, a guardian of the universe, is requesting that Hal Jordan uh, go to Earth on a mission. And Ganfit says, there are rumblings in every corner of this universe, whispers of a stirring in the dark. A terrible truth is coming to light on your home planet, and we must not let it. Look at the design of the platform that they are standing on. That is straight out of the Green Lantern movie. So right there in Ganthet's words, same, same kind of um, uh, dialogue, you know, stirring in the dark, a terrible truth is coming to light. I like when he says, in every corner of this universe. We'll see how all that plays out. So <clears throat> Hal Jordan goes to the Batcave and uh, he meets Duke Thomas, who is guarding the Batcave. And we learn that uh, not even the Bat family is allowed in the Batcave right now. When they are fighting, Duke wonders why Green Lantern's ring can work on his yellow costume. And he says, I thought it didn't work on yellow. And Hal Jordan says, it does if you know what you're doing. Now, basically what that means is ever since they got rid of the parallax impurity, um, there is still the yellow impurity in the ring for rookies. And eventually it it means that you as a Green Lantern have to overcome it. And then eventually, you know, you won't have um, a weakness to anything yellow. Uh, uh, Duke says, I don't have a code name yet. He will. And apparently Hal Jordan finds something. He finds whatever it was he was sent to Earth to find. And he, you know, just phases right through one of the walls in the Batcave. Um, he was totally surprised initially by Ganthet to realize that he was going to have to go to Wayne Manor in the first place, and he finds something, and we'll find out in the next couple of pages. All right, page 10. This is our first connection to uh, the information that I talked about in last episode in the Dark Matter Ashcan. So we come up on something called the Campus, which is a headquarters that is one mile beneath Philadelphia. We run into Immortal Man, who is a DC character. I'm not quite sure who the other one is, although he kind of looks like Jason Blood. They're talking about Duke's mom. Her name is Elaine Thomas. Uh, Apparently her mind has been snapped by Joker toxins, and she's being held at Wayne Manor. We find out that whatever it is that the Immortals are up to, um, she was once offered to join. She was offered a membership onto the team. And it says here to join a secret battle that stretched back to the dawn of time and offer to live forever. Again, this is dialogue straight out of that ash can that I talked about yesterday. I'm not exact, or in last episode, I'm not sure why they wanted to choose her. Um, Maybe because Duke Thomas has a um, destiny. Um, And it could just be as simple as, you know, Snyder created Duke Thomas and he wants to give him a central point. 
So then we see an image of a, a group of characters. One of them is Ghost Fist, one of the characters that we saw in the ash can. And then there are three others. There's uh, a, a female, uh, an Ameren-looking female. There's a sniper in a, you know, kind of like a white Moon Knight costume and some kind of animal-looking thing. I assume these must be the siblings that we talked about in uh, last episode. So then the Immortal Man says, The world of the public heroes is careening toward a crisis unlike anything they've seen before. And there's that word, crisis, right? That has a lot of meaning within the DC universe. Also that he calls them the public heroes because these immortal men are in the background and and they've been in the background for many, many generations. So um, we're getting a new concept within uh, the DC universe. He also says, and it will be up to the immortal men to preserve mankind's future if any of us survive long enough to see it. The main point that I got from this page, as I said, it's a way to show these new characters, to bring them within the event and within the DC universe. And that's something that has been going on since the original crisis. You know, events are a great way to bring in new characters and to entice readers to maybe follow them if they're spun off into uh, their own title. All right, then pages 11 and 12. Page 11 is by Andy Kubert. Page 12 is by Jim Lee. We see that, uh, as I said before, the ship that crash-landed in Egypt is composed entirely of nth metal. It's not just powered by nth metal. Um, we get the name Shiera and Hathset. Um, and it's this montage. It's like a mix of Golden Age and Silver Age adventures, right? Um, it's It feels like there's some Silver Age stuff in here because... Um, Katar Hall came to Earth from Thanagar because he was chasing a character named Bith, B-Y-T-H. And that monster you see at the top of the page is what Bith would turn into. So um, this montage of, of adventures, Hawkman adventures, and, and I love that shot of Hawkman's face um, midway through the page because that feels very Joe Kubert. Um, it feels like they're giving Katar Hall's adventures to Kadar, uh, Carter Hall. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's they're just trying to hit some of the beats without really trying to explain it, maybe. Now, the other wrinkle to the Hawkman mythos that this page is alluding to started in the Hawkman series after Return of Hawkman uh, by James Robinson and David Goyer and Jeff Johns and Rags Morales was the artist. This is in the mid-2000s, I guess. So there was, there was this idea that... Um, the original Golden Age Hawkman was reincarnated by reincarnated from Prince Khufu, but he was only reincarnated once, right? He believed that he was the reincarnation of this ancient uh, Egyptian prince. Well, what this new Hawkman series did is say, no, that wasn't the only time he was reincarnated. He was reincarnated sometimes in the bodies of other well-known DC characters, such as Silent Night, uh, Nighthawk, and Cinnamon, who um, Cinnamon was a female uh, Western character, and that's what Shiera was uh, reincarnated into. So again, it was like this new wrinkle within the Hawkman mythos. Um, since it's a character based on reincarnation, let's reincarnate him all over the DC universe, which I thought was really cool. I'm a little uncertain who 
They are battling on the bottom page. He kind of looks like Eclipso. I have to imagine it's probably half set, but I can't I can't picture really what it is. I can't, you know, I can't really tell. Um, this page is great. I think it's everything you need to catch up on Hawkman lore. Um, and then we learn from the narrative that in between all of these reincarnations, Carter would see visions of an alternate universe that's shown on the cover as well. So again, we've already got some allusions to some other dimension, possibly a multiversal thing, and then this nightmare um, vision of another world on the cover and on this page as well. And Carter says, it's like a nightmare echoing through the metal. So same thing like Batman, he's sensing something coming through the metal. And then Carter says, so I began following a mystery of my own, something I told no one about, not until now, here in these pages. It's kind of like reading Rorschach's journal from Watchmen, right? All right, and then page 13 through 16. This is by John Romita Jr. It's interesting to compare John Romita Jr.'s version of Batman to Andy Kubert's from just a few pages earlier. Um, they're very different styles, very different styles, very different looks, all within one issue, but, you know, whatever. Um, we find ourselves on a lunar bat cave on the moon. I think we've seen this before, but maybe can, maybe someone out there can let me know. Um, Bruce Wayne has a shadow drive. He has information that he got from the Bermuda Triangle site, and he's uh, putting it into what he calls the shadow drive that has all the information about what he's learned about metal in this dark uh, dimension and this dark energy. And then, lo and behold, someone else is in the Lunar Bat Cave, and it's Mr. Terrific, who we haven't seen for, you know, a little bit. He was in uh, the Earth 2 title. Um, he was pushed to the Earth 2 world, and now we learn why. It's because he was there as a front to help Batman in his ongoing quest for this mystery. And that's why he's been out of the loop for a while. So that's kind of cool. They give him a little reason why they put him on the back burner. So Mr. Terrific says, the frequency that's being generated across the worlds is growing stronger, but it's not steady at all. It seems random, like a compass spinning wildly out of control. There's nothing on this earth that I know of that could get you a clean reading of this data. It would take something massive, something practically cosmic in scale. So if you know your crisis lore, all of the alternate Earths, all of the multiple, multiple Earths are separated by different vibrational frequencies. And Mr. Terrific is saying, look, we don't have anything on Earth that can follow these uh, frequencies and give us a reading to where they're coming from, which gives Batman an idea, which we will see later in this issue. So then they talk about um, another character that has been off the grid for years, ever since the New 52 started. We might have seen him just a few few times. And he's saying, look, you know, he, he's destined to be one of the most powerful people. Um, I extracted a few molecules from him, but we need to bring him back into play. And we get this awesome splash page of the return of Plastic Man. That's Plastic Man in an egg shape uh, being compressed and held together by Batman's machines. He almost looks like he's the egg that Silly Putty comes in. Um, this was my first big oh damn moment of the book. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Again, 
Snyder and Tinian and company just pulling from all without the DC universe and, and making this really fun, fun story. All right, pages 17 through 20, we go back to Green Lantern and Duke, where they have found a secret Batcave within a secret Batcave. This is more John Romita Jr. art on this. And we get a new narrator or a new character, and he's like this disembodied voice. He's like a new player on the field, and he knows a lot of things. And we start to see that Green Lantern's ring is starting to go on the fritz, And the next few pages are a nice summary of sorts of the entire Batman epic that was written by Snyder and Greg Capullo. So all of this metal stuff, now a lot of this might be retconning or maybe Snyder might have had some idea to keep all this stuff in mind. Um, Apparently there was a metal tooth pulled from one of the talons that belonged to the Court of Owls. So the talons are kind of like the muscle for for that shadowy organization called the Court of Owls. And the tooth is made of electrum, and it could apparently bring the dead back to life. So Batman finds a substance within the electrum, within this tooth, that science can't explain. And this is what kicks off the entire journey to figuring out what this all means. So this is going way back to the New 52 here, right? Um, And this metal has connections, as we learn on these next few pages. It shares an energy signature with well-known DCU artifacts, such as the Helm of Naboo, Dr. Fate, Aquaman's Trident, and Wonder Woman's bracelets, which in the Silver Age were made up of a metal called Amazonium. I don't know what they're made up of now, but, you know, hey, why not? If, if DC has this fake metal that they created in the Silver Age, why not bring it back and tie it into what's going on into this adventure? Which, you know, for me, that's, that's just awesome. And it really is just curious that, uh, you know, this voice has all of this information. So keep that in mind. This voice just knows a lot. And then we find that to help Batman investigate all of this metal stuff, he forms a team a team that could work outside Batman's usual realm of influence. And now we have the second oh damn moment that I got from this issue when we see that the team that he formed is the original Outsiders. It's the original lineup from 1983. You have uh, Black Lightning, you have Geoforce, you have Metamorpho, Katana, Halo, and Batman. All the members of the original, one of my favorite you know, 80s series, Batman and the Outsiders. Um, Here they are, and they're given a new purpose within the DC universe, within DC Rebirth. Now, what I like about it is, okay, so this is like a twist on their origin, right? Batman brought them together to find out the mystery of metal. But that origin could fit with the original origin that we saw way back in 1983 when Batman quit the JLA. He quit the JLA because... They wouldn't go to Markovia to rescue Lucius Fox, who got caught behind enemy lines. Um, you know, they they said, we can't do that. You got to do this through governmental um, agencies. You can't cross political lines. And Batman said, you know what? Then fine. Then I quit the JLA. And he goes to Markovia himself, which is the homeland of Geoforce. And he um, 
brings along, I think he bring, brings along Metamorpho and Black Knight Lightning, and then along the way, they meet Halo and Katana and Geoforce, and he forms the Outsiders. So you could kind of say that maybe he already had files on all these characters, and, um, you know, quitting the JLA and the whole thing with Lucius Fox might have just been his excuse. Like, he, he took it as an opportunity to say, oh, great, I can quit the JLA um, nobody will expect that I'm really doing this for ul- ulterior motives, but whatever. Um, the other thing I like about it is the makeup of the team is even more interesting now. So if Batman is investigating a strange metal that can control universal forces, like we talked about earlier, gravity, the strong force, electromagnetism, etc., the weak force, think of the characters that we have. We have Black Lightning for electromagnetism, we have Geoforce for all the Earth stuff, gravity especially. We have Halo, who has uh, powers that are based on uh, the color spectrum. So, like, she changes her Halo to one color, and she can have a tractor beam. She changes it to another, and she has a heat beam. Um, she has another one, and I think she can create holographic images. And if you think about the DC Universe, whenever you have something that is dealing with color, it could be t- it could be tied to the emotional spectrum um, of the Rainbow Lanterns. And we, are all, we already learned that uh, this nth metal also has emotional properties. So I love that. You have Katana, who wields a mystical sword. And then Metamorpho, who can shape his body to the many various elements um, found uh, in nature. So again, awesome connections. What originally felt like a random team of misfits are suddenly given this new person. I I just think that's great. Now, what I don't like is Ramita's designs for some of these characters. Yikes. Halo looks ugly. Geoforce. Geoforce is more or less the same as he usually looks. Um, I don't like Black Black Lightning's look. Um, It's just not good. Now, Metamorpho, he feels like he's a mix of what he originally looks like, but also he looks like... um, there was a time when a part of his body got separated and became a character named Shift, and uh, the design for Shift feels a little bit like what we're seeing here. So um, I'm not a fan of the look. I think it's a little sloppy, I'm going to say it. Um, but I love the fact that the outsiders are brought in here. So then the disembodied voice, he continues, and we, re- we find out that he's been here for a while, we're introduced to Dionysium. Dionysium. It's a liquid metal. It's shimmering and it's green. And the voice says, a metal that changed everything. Now, I do think we, we have seen this before. And Duke is very aware of it, I have to assume, because of maybe his mother. So we've seen Dionysium before. It's the stuff that Joker made his super venom of. It's been used by Vandal Savage. Rachel Ghoul has used it for his Lazarus pit. Uh, I guess it has some resurrection qualities. And I have to wonder, is this why Ganthet sent Hal Jordan to the Batcave? Is this the connection, uh, this, this green liquid metal, is this a connection to the Green Lantern universe, the Green Lantern rings, the Green Lantern power batteries? Is this the metal that uh, is used to contain all of that energy? I guess we'll have to find out. So now both Duke and Hal have a stake in whatever it is this mystery is. And uh, again, just how much does this voice know and how does he know? 
If you've been playing along, you probably should be able to tell who this voice is by now. Sometimes by the way he refers to the characters, like he calls Batman pointy ears. He says, Mr. Green Lantern. And then every now and then the lettering, the way certain words are shaped, feels uh, a little askew. So um, I have to imagine, you know, most people probably knew who this voice was. I don't know if I knew who it was at first. So uh, we'll find out in a couple of pages. Okay, page 21 through 22, we are back to Carter Hall. I believe this is Andy Kubert. These two pages feel like uh, like we're watching Indiana Jones in um, that big warehouse that has all the artifacts. So we have some more from Carter Hall's journal. He says, one minute you're following the clues, and the next they're pulling you forward, dragging you. And that's very similar to what the voice said to Duke and Hal in the previous page about Batman getting close to the truth, and now that has pulled in Duke and Hal. So that's kind of cool. More narration here. Nth Metal was conducting energy, powerful energy from somewhere beyond my understanding. Now, I held off on this little bit of information, but it's something I thought about for a while as I was reading this. So they keep talking about how Nth Metal has inherent energies that are being channeled from somewhere. There's a story from the Hawkman series of 1993 that followed the Hawk World series in the early 90s. And the story was called Godspawn. And this was all just building up to zero hour. Um, It was discovered that the secret behind the energies of Nth Metal were wrapped up in the fact that the people of Thanagar imprisoned this giant hawk god. And I want to say maybe Katar's father was responsible for it, but I don't remember. Anyway, because this god was captured, the energies from this large creature were being siphoned through the nth metal, more or less. It's been a while since I've read that that volume. So we're kind of getting the same thing here, that the nth metal is channeling energies from somewhere. And if you put together what's been said about, you know, uh, cosmic frequencies, um, maybe other universes, uh, you know, um, somewhere dark, right? We're starting to get closer and closer to the reveal of dark matter, the dark multiverse, etc., um, I love these pages. Uh, I think they're really cool because Carter Hall is an archaeologist. On the shelves, we see various headgear that he's worn as Hawkman. We see a mask worn by one of his villains called the Manhawks. And he's looking at these tablets. And these tablets have iconography on them. Um, and uh, the narration says, A glimpse of a story that began with the first men to walk the earth. Three tribes, hawk, bear, and wolf, or rather four, and we get an image of a bat. I mean, we're really starting to hit this, hit home this idea of whatever this mystery is, it's been around for a long, long time. So let's talk about these tribes, the hawk, bear, wolf, and now the bat. This is all straight out of Grant Morrison's Return of Bruce Wayne, the six-issue miniseries from 2010 which was post-Final Crisis. And in that series, um, because he was sent back in time by Darkseid in Final Crisis, uh, Bruce Wayne has to travel forward back to his time. And he has no memory. 
He is cast into different eras in within time. So he's sent back to the dawn of time, to the caveman time. Um, he's sent to Puritan times and then the Wild West and somewhere else. So in issue one of that series, um, he is back in uh, back at the dawn of history. And um, he's nearly killed by a tribe of Neanderthals led by the man who will become Vandal Savage. So because he has no memory, Bruce Wayne is basically operating on instinct and he creates a pelt of a giant bat and he uses that to, um, you know, fend for himself. So inherent within him is this idea about the bat and maybe that's how the bat tribe started. Um, Carter Hall says, again, he says, the secret that stretched back to the dawn of my species. So since we knew that there was a bear tribe and we knew that there was a wolf tribe. Um, I guess we're getting the knowledge that there also was a hawk tribe and that's where Carter Hall and um, his people come from. And now, as I said, there's now a bat tribe as well. So the bear tribe is where Immortal Man comes from. The wolf tribe is where Vandal Savage comes from. And I believe later on they they are renamed the Blood Tribe. Um, and if you don't know why these characters are important, Immortal Man and Vandal Savage were Neanderthals that were bathed in the energies of a strange meteorite. So now I have to ask, are they going to make this meteorite nth metal? Is it yet another early version of nth metal? Or is it just that all of these metals share the same properties because they pull energy from this dark dimension? So... Uh, maybe nth metal is just the strongest of all of them and it helps to connect them all. Or maybe nth metal corrupted the metals. I don't know. So I guess that's what we're going to find out. It's interesting to note that um, this is a little bit of a tangent. I, I talked about this in some other The Daily Rios episode where I, one of the few proposals that I sent into DC was this proposal that all characters that had origins based on meteors we're all connected. So people like Immortal Man, Vandal Savage, Red Star, Super Chief, I think even Metamorpho. So all of these characters had these, they all had meteors that dropped around them. And I thought, hey, what if all the meteorites were part of one particular thing? So I thought about uh, the source and um, way out in space, um, before you get to the source and the source wall, there's this Promethean giant wall. There's this wall with all these giants, Promethean giants. It's a very Kirby, um, Kirby creation. And uh, the idea is that uh, a, co a controller, which is an offshoot of the Guardians of the Universe, was trying to steal a piece of the wall for himself. And something went wrong and it sent all these shattered fragments all through time. And that's why the DC Universe is littered with meteorites. So if any of that comes out to play within uh, this event, you can, uh, you can say that I wrote that. I wrote metal. No. Anyway, all right, so back to, the, back to the issue. Pages 23 through 28, we go back to Batman. Three pages are by John Romita Jr. Three pages are by Jim Lee. Leading up to the third big oh damn moment, one of the best of the books. So Batman travels to the Fortress of Solitude in the Arctic. Uh, it's kind of interesting that his bat plane on this page is strangely similar in design to the Thanagarian ship 
that crashed in ancient Egypt. It's a total coincidence, but it just looks cool to point it out. Um, Bruce has yet another bat cave. We learned that he came to Superman years ago and he said, hey, I need a room uh, underneath your fortress. And Superman said, sure. And Batman said, just make sure you don't look in it. So now we have a bat cave within the fortress. I mean, I know some people might think that's a little sacrilegious to do that to Superman, but I mean, come on. We already had like a bat cave sort of uh, in the Bermuda Triangle with Aquaman. We have a bat cave on the moon. We have a bat cave within the bat cave that Green Lantern has has been investigating, uh, has been investigating. And now we have a bat cave in the super cave. You know, Snyder said he was going to play around with the bombastic, with the larger than life. And what's more in your face than sticking Batman into the Fortress of Solitude, you know? Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> All right, and then we get an appearance by, look, Mr. Miracle. Again, this comic keeps getting wider and wider and wider. First we had Blackhawks and Immortal Man. Now we have Mr. Miracle. And Scott Free is brought in because he's the only one that can open the lock for this mysterious room that Batman has in the fortress. So Scott Free opens the lock and is instantly shocked by what he sees. And I love what he has to say. He says, that can't be what I think it is. You can't have been stupid enough to hold on to. And then he's cut off. And we don't quite learn what it is just yet. Um until we turn the page and Batman has a mother flipping monitor tuning fork from Crisis on Infinite Earths and Infinite Crisis. And I just about pooped my pants when I saw this. Boom. In one image, we have totally gone DC Cosmic. The story is even bigger. The cosmo cosmology of this story is huge. And now we know, as if you didn't already from stuff that's been going on within this issue and interviews, that there is something multiversal going on with this mystery. And this is all played on what Mr. Terrific said earlier, right? Batman needs the tower to find out where all of this dark energy leads to. He even says, time to see what's in the dark once and for all. Go back to that poem that I read earlier on in this episode. The very first line is, all I know is a door into the dark. Again, total coincidence, probably, but that's kind of cool. This is just amazing. I mean, when I saw this, it was almost like the big reveal at the end of the Sinestro uh, Core special. Sinestro War or Sinestro Core special, yeah. Um, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I, I mean, it doesn't... It's not like it's surprising. And some people might have seen this and thought, oh man, not another crisis story. But no, it's not that. It's just using the tools and using some visual tools and using tropes that are popular within the DC event spectrum. Um, if you have something multi multiversal, why wouldn't you use a tuning fork, right? It's something that's been established within the DC universe for a long time. So I just, oh, it was so good. When I saw this. Now, what's also interesting about this page is that we get a Hawkman narration, a Carter Hall narration over this scene where it's where he says, whatever you do, do not follow in my footsteps. So I guess that means Carter has been where Bruce is about to go and maybe Bruce shouldn't go there. 
And then we get the final two pages, page 29 and 30. We go back to Green Lantern and Duke, and this is artwork by Jim Lee. You know, I have to imagine maybe for some people this was a big shock. I didn't know who we would find at the end of the secret Batcave, but it definitely does make sense. Uh, we learn who's been talking to them. We have a narration that says, again, from Carter Hall, that says, I beg of you, whoever might be reading this, however many generations might have passed. Now, does that mean he's been missing for a while? Is that just hyperbole? Or maybe he thought it would be decades before anyone would read his journal. Or maybe he's been trapped in the dark dimension for a long time. That little sentence, that has to be unpacked soon because I don't. I want to know what that means. And I want to know where Carter Hall is. So um, he continues. Carter Hall says, do not follow the mystery of the metals. All you'll find is horror. And what's more horrific than the Joker? And that's the reveal. That's who's been talking to Green Lantern and Duke for uh, that story arc within this issue. I don't know how he knows what he knows. I don't know where he learned it, but uh, that's kind of interesting. And then you have to ask yourself, which Joker is this? So ever since the DC Rebirth special, we've learned that there are possibly three Jokers that are running around. And, uh, you know, who... Which one is this Joker? I mean, he looks like the Joker that has been popping up within Snyder's Batman story, Batman's run, um, but we don't know quite yet. We will find out next issue, though. And then he says, the Joker says, this is a mystery that stretches back to the dawn of time, and we've seen that wordage before. So that's it. That's where this issue ends, and uh, that's it. There you have it. That's a breakdown of... um, this issue. I hoped that uh, this helped to maybe fill in some gaps. As I said, I didn't, I'm not going through and like trying to detail everything, and I'm not trying to say, hey, this character first appeared here, and here's this character, and oh, you don't know who Batman is? Well, let me tell you about Batman's or No, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just, I'm just trying to fill in gaps or give a clearer picture of what's going on in this issue. And, uh, you know, potentially I have to imagine some of this stuff will play out with metal number one that is out this week. So let me know your thoughts. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Visit the website, thedailyrios.com. You could tweet at me, Peter J. Rios. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes. You can just do a search for The Daily Rios. You will get um, this particular podcast, The Daily Rios. You'll also probably get... The Daily Rios presents The Tower, which is my new Teen Titans podcast. So again, please send me some feedback. Let me know if I missed anything or if there's something you want more clarification on. And uh, if you're just here along for the ride, thanks for playing along. Um, I hope I was as concise as I can be. When you're talking about Crisis and you're talking about Hawkman and you're talking about, uh, you know, lots of all this, all of this like, DC lore, it can get a little confusing, but uh, um, those were my notes. That's what I wrote when I read this issue, and I thought I have to pass it along. And um, I love the whole breakdowns format, the footnotes format, and um, again, not trying to be super, super specific with everything, just kind of giving you an overview of some of the thoughts that I had with this issue. All right, this is a long episode. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 394, taking a look at the one-shot The Forge. And next up, we'll do an episode on the next one-shot called The Casting. All right, see you then.